Hey, welcome to Genre Exposure, a film podcast. Join us as we explore the wide world of cinema, broaden our horizons one movie at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Dustin, and as usual, I'm here with Michael. Hello, fellow listeners. And Jason. Hey, everyone. The fuck was that? I'm going for like my dead of night. He's being creepy. <laughs> uh, like my dead of night, like intro. He's being like, creepier than normal. Like mm. my crypt keeper type. Like, okay. hello, listeners. Mm. We're starting a new series about <laughs> anthologies. <laughs> anthologies yes and it's going to be super fun we're covering dead of night for our first one from 1945 that's the oldest movie we've covered so far i believe it is yeah it's older than jason trip 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 um but we're going to do all our usual stuff before that and we'll dig in and talk about what anthology films are and cover this awesome awesome movie spoiler for my spoiler oh dustin likes spoiler (laughs) um did you uh letterboxed it yet yes i already okay i didn't i it's a good thing I don't follow you on Redderbox <laughs> or actually do that anymore, or else everything would be spoiled. Yep. All right, so we are part of the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, and we love it, and it's super cool. But there's all these other awesome shows out there you could be listening to, and we're under no compulsion to shout them out, but I like to. Yeah, I mean, if, if you li- if listen to all of our shows multiple times, I guess it's okay if you want to go on and listen to some of the others <laughs> on the network. But be sure that you've streamed it at least three to four. Yeah. yeah. And you've picked out your and highlighted your favorite and, part. And smashed that like and subscribe button. <laughs> yeah, ring that bell. <laughs> I just want to have a YouTube channel just so I can say something obnoxious like, be sure to fucking smash that like button down there. Go ahead and leave a comment. You think I'm cool? Leave a comment because I need your validation. We could do maybe, that. Maybe we can, we can easily dabble do with that, that sometime. No. All right. So here's our shout out for this time. I checked out Fans of the Dead. It's uh, two hosts, Mike and Jeremy. They love everything horror, and they just dedicate their show and every episode to exploring the genre. Oh, so they're not necrophiles? No. Okay. Not it that might kind be. of... Well, <laughs> I mean, that's not what it's about. It's more of a George Romero reference. Frankly, Jason, that's none of your goddamn business. <laughs> are, they, are they big fans of necromantic? <laughs> I, I didn't go through their whole catalog. Oh, okay. They've actually been going mm-hmm. since, like, 2019. They've got a good number of episodes. Um, they kind of do, like, a back-and-forth format. One episode, they'll cover a film kind of do the same kind of stuff that we do or a lot of other general film podcasts where you just you know talk about the plot talk about what you like break it down all that good stuff mm-hmm. and then the next episode will be a tangent where it's some kind of discussion topic usually centered around horror somehow uh they do a lot of like top 10 lists and stuff so the one i checked out was their most recent as of this recording and it was a top 10 for dystopia films ah. so super fun i actually picked up one or two things for my watch list Yep. That I had never heard of before. That I was kind of like, huh, really? One was even a Netflix film, so we'll really? we'll see. What was it? Uh, I think it was called The Bad Batch, or just Bad Batch. Oh, yeah, that has Jason Momoa in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's real fucking weird. Yeah, I heard it was that's weird. That's not the Disney show we're talking about. No, no. no. Okay. Just, just the synopsis was so weird, and I was like, whoa, this is on Netflix, though? It, yeah. was, it was a couple of years ago, yeah. I think, one of their... I think they said 2016-ish. It was around there. Uh, riding high on that Jason Momoa Game of Thrones. Nice. Um, but it's like beardless Jason Momoa. Mm. It's kind of weird. That's weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like him with a beard. I know. Uh, so yeah, they're super fun. Uh, you can find out all kinds of cool things about movies that they enjoy, find new stuff for yourself to listen to. I mean, that's, that's half the fun for every film podcast for me is just growing that watch list eternally. So, mm. uh, you can find them at fans of the They've got, they're on everything else. Like everyone, iTunes, all that stuff. So go look them up. I'll put it in the show notes. Are they on Ghana? I don't know. We should tell them about Ghana. <laughs> we should spread that around, yeah. You should, you should get on Ghana if you've got a podcast and you're listening. Our Ghana listeners are like, fuck yeah! <laughs> no, no, Ghana, I, shout out! 
I check it, you know, every week, and we have a few listens from India. So I, I guess. Oh, sweet. Hello, everyone in India. Yeah. Tune in. Hey, thanks for um, listening. Yeah, thanks for tuning I in. I promise we will do Indian films. Oh yeah, we're gonna get there one day. Cause I know a few good ones. Yeah. All right, what have you guys been watching? Come you on. go first, Michael. Well, I was gonna do Rescue Rangers because uh, I fucking loved it. And I showed it to my wife because I was like, this movie's so hilarious. And she told me after it was over that it's the worst movie she's ever seen. And she hates that I made her watch it. Oh, and no. she regretted all of that time. Wow. So, well, well, I haven't seen it, but I'm going to say I think that appeals to a very specific set of people. <laughs> she's my age, though. Like, we both grew up on Disney no, Afternoon. No, she's your physical age, not your mental age. <laughs> exactly. That's very true. So I'm not going to do Rescue Rangers since it was such a polarizing thing in my household. Wow, okay. <laughs> Jeez. I bet more of our listeners would like it than not. I don't know. I'm really nervous to recommend it now because <laughs> she legitimately tonight was like, you're not doing Rescue Rangers for your pod movie. Wow. Right? And I she was even like, mentioned that. Oh well, it was. The shame. The shame. Yes, I'm not now. Um, instead, I watched kind of a safe movie. Um, it's a Netflix movie. Dustin and I have talked about this, though. It's, this is one of those movies that Netflix just paid for. Right. And like they bought. And it's then most of them. Airing it. Yeah. Tend to be better. And I, yeah, I think they tend to, when they don't have like creative control over it and they're not trying to push like a specific marketing angle. Mm-hmm. Right. It, you kind of get somebody else's film that's already been made. Netflix right. is like, sure, we'll buy that and stream it. Um, well, this one was actually from 2021 called Operation Mincemeat. Ooh, I like that title. Um, it is a World War II kind of drama mm-hmm. uh, starring Colin Firth, Matthew McFadden, and uh, super awesome Jason Isaacs, as always. Mm-hmm. Dude could read the phone book and I'm there. <laughs> um, nice. It is about a kind of an obscure plot in World War II where the British were trying to fake the Nazi gov- or the Nazis into thinking that they were going to attack Greece when everyone knew that the next move was going to be to attack Italy. But, like, they really needed the Germans to redeploy their forces somewhere else. So they came up with this absolutely absurd plot where they would find a dead person, um, put letters on them of, like... (laughs) Find a dead person. (laughs) That's literally what they did, though. They, like, went to the morgue. Okay. And they were, like, (laughs) trying to find somebody who met criteria. There's even a really funny... It's very dry Mm -hmm. British humor, but there's even a funny where, like, hey, where's his legs? We can't use him. He has no legs. And it... It really sounds horrible when I say it like that now. (laughs) Um, But in the film, the context is pretty funny. I get it. Uh, But their whole goal is to float a dead body onto the shore so that the Nazis find him with all these official correspondence papers. And it, like, is so absurd that only they'll they'll only buy it because they're like, this is so absurd that they'll never. This is no way this is a British plot. Mm -hmm. It was a British plot. Um, It's based on a true story. That's what I was just about to ask. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how much is like, you know, for I'm sure some dramatized. Yeah, you know. um, I like Colin Firth. He's the same person in everything he does, but I like him. If you need that uh, that kind of person, yeah, that kind of <laughs> yeah. straight laced British guy, and Matthew McFadden. I don't know if you guys know who he is, but uh, uh, I think he was in that Ripper Street show. Which wasn't that good, but he's great. Yeah, I never watched that one either. He's he just blends into every role he's in. He's kind of like a Gary Oldman that you're watching it and you're like, "Holy shit, that was Gary Oldman!" Mm. Like you're afraid that you're gonna wake up when you're fifty and realize you were Gary Oldman the entire time of your life that you didn't know it. (laughs) I'd be okay with that. Yeah, I mean that's pretty cool. (laughs) Um, I enjoyed it. It's safe. There's nothing. I don't want to say there's nothing exciting about it, but there really isn't. 
Um, but <laughs> well, and here's well, my you're really selling this movie. Here's my reason for that, though. Like um, at the time of we're recording this, there's been absolutely horrible news um, in the news cycle right now. There's another school shooting. It's been really heavy. Like, yeah. and I just didn't want. I didn't want anything that was really challenging. Absolutely. I didn't want anything downery. I just wanted something that I knew what it was going to be. Yeah, you wanted something like Rescue Rangers. I did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fucking Rescue Rangers. I mean, how can you go wrong with Andy Samberg and John Mulaney? I know. Apparently yeah. you can, because my wife hated it. Um, there's a great bit about Ugly Sonic in it. I know. I've, I've seen the spoilers. I'm, I'm <laughs> the there Ugly for Sonic thing is just fucking hilarious. Uh, anyway. Operation Mincemeat... <laughs> Wow, this one off the rails. A, a glowing review. Uh, I really did enjoy it, though. It's a typical uh, war drama, though. So if you've seen anything like The Monument Men or... Um, oh, I don't think it's quite as serious as like Valkyrie and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, but it's solid acting. There's some great lines delivered in it from just some great British actors. The plot itself is so absurd that you're like, how the fuck did this happen? Like, mm-hmm. there's no way this right. was done. And it totally was done. Um, for some reason, there is a weird love angle that's thrown in there that I don't feel was necessary, but, you know, whatever. So typical for all kinds of films. Yeah. So. I got mean, a love story for I could forgive that. Yeah. yeah, it's... I guess it appeals to more audiences, and that's mm-hmm. fine. Whatever. Um, it's on Netflix. It's only about two hours. Uh, but I really had fun with it. It was safe, cool. easy to watch, and enjoyable. I'm not the heaviest into war films, but The Beast has kind of started to change my... My mind on that, so. Cool. There's this a lot is, of great war movies out yeah. there, man. What I really like is the angle that this, what, what was really interesting for it is it the film talks about how there's basically two wars being ha- happening. It's the war that we see that's basically like the Saving Private Ryan war, mm-hmm. where it's the soldiers on the ground, and then there's a whole other war of just like espionage and mm-hmm. all this gray area of like trying to deceive everybody else that you don't hear about as much. Yeah, see, I think that's kind of a compelling angle. To, it, yeah, yeah, it's it's really fun, and the absurdity of the whole plot, you're just like, no way that happened, but yes, totally happened, so. Nice. I, you could also throw it in there, maybe, with um, likes of, like, the Imitation Game, the Alan Turing thing with Cumberbatch. Yeah. Cool. Kind of along the same lines, but, yeah, there you go. Awesome. Right. Rescue <laughs> Rangers, for the win. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna double, double entry for you, Michael, even though you didn't talk about it too much. <laughs> I suspect, Jason, you have something crazy or special, so I'm going to go next. I could do it. Okay. Watch him. <laughs> Nothing. He's like, I actually didn't watch it. He's like, anything. my movie is Rescue Rangers. <laughs> I myself am crazy and special. <laughs> so, I have to talk about a new movie. Put those box sets on hold for right now. Because I checked out Alex Garland's 2022 masterpiece, Men. I'm so anxious to yeah, see this movie. so jealous. I'm glad to go. I'm excited you get to see it. I might it, go but... tomorrow. Uh, first things to get out of the way about it. Um, no spoilers, of course. No spoilers. Amazing acting, amazing everything. If you've seen any Alex Garland film, it's what you come to expect from him. Annihilation's great, great. Great visuals, great atmosphere. A little slower pace, but that's just so it can kind of make that mood and let that wash over you and kind of pull you through into the story and what's going on. Um, it went in directions I didn't quite expect, and it was a way that was like very pleasing where I was like, oh, so this... like You have an idea, I think, if you've seen the trailer, what you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of is that, but it's kind of some other stuff too. And I mean, I think the one special thing to really talk about is uh, Roy Kinnear plays like all the male characters in the film. And he's incredible in his portrayals of these. Cause like, I think I read in an interview, he said for each character, even if they only had a few minutes of screen time, he still sat and wrote like a backstory mm-hmm. of who this person is to have, like have that in his mind for acting. 
And then, of course, uh, Jesse Buckley as the lead. She pretty much is the movie. Like That's like 90% of the time. You're just on, on screens on her. You're with her through everything. It's her story. Cool. And she kills it, man. She's so amazing in it. Um, obviously, if you're out there checking on horror groups and new sites and stuff, there's a lot of like weird, it's elevated horror, A24, pushback stuff. Um, it's great, though. So get that out of your head. I think our listeners already know how we feel about A24 and the whole term of elevated horror. I loved it. And then the other thing, too, the whole, like, oh, toxic masculinity thing, like, it's her character's story. And, like, you just need to let that be the story that it is. And, like, technically it is true that historically there's a great long history of men taking advantage of women all throughout time and time again. It's still happening. And I'm not going to give too much of a spoiler, but that is, like, one of the sub-themes in the film about, like, different eras of time and how that has like carried forward into the present. I always say it's true. It's so true. You can't deny it. You can do whatever you want. Go cry in the corner. It's true. Even if you are like weird on that topic for some reason, there's still like a lot to love about this film because as much as it's about all of that, it's also about grief and overcoming that and finding and like being able to wrestle with something that's like insurmountably impossible to deal with. And then learning how you can actually move forward and find a peace with that to like live your life. Cool. Nice. What were you going to say, Jason? Oh, I was just going to say that I think that people who watch something like that and then immediately feel attacked, like they're being called the, their toxic masculinity or whatever. It's because it makes them feel guilty. Maybe you yeah. need to evaluate why you feel that way. Yes. <laughs> why, are, why are you feeling guilty? I stand by that statement 100%. Come fight me now. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with being called out and taking a minute to say, you know what, maybe mm. you have a bit of truth in there and I should probably, I could, it makes you a better person, people. Like That's yeah. one of the powers of film is that they can, they can lead you to self-realizations. What? Are you serious? Yes. It's okay to admit that you might have been wrong. Mm-hmm. And it, it's okay to be wrong. That's they, our catchphrase. And, and change yes. your views. Well, I mean, like, you could tell me it's okay to be wrong <laughs> about a movie. I like, I mean, like, I'm not changing my views. But, but I mean, that's know. the joke is that it, it's that, yeah. and then it's also it's okay. true. It's okay. It's okay. Jason, what'd you watch? All right, well, I'm going to break the rules this time. You guys have broken the rules, so... Go ahead. I'm going to talk about a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, you guys know I'm a big Star Trek fan, right? No. I, am, I have been less than impressed by the newer shows. You don't love Michael Burnham? The actress is great. She is great. I almost want Christopher Walken there. <laughs> the actress is great. Um, the show, not so much. Um, it's Discovery is it could be pretty good, but then most of the time it's it's just not great. When I, it hits, I tu- it hits. I finally tuned out though. Fourth yeah. season lost. I've me. only seen like the I'm first out. season and I liked it, so I need to chart that and see where and, I fall. You know, and, and if you do like it, cool, awesome. I'm, more power to you. Um, Picard, in my humble opinion, is. Shit on toast. <laughs> it is terrible. I didn't even watch the second season. I like uh, the uh, part where the people I know show up. Yeah, right. Yeah. I didn't hate Picard. Dude, I hated it. I, it's one of the worst shows I've seen ever. I do hate ever. it. I just thought it ended poorly. <laughs> it started and ended poorly. <laughs> but I want to but. talk about Strange New Worlds. Because cool. this is actually a step in the right direction. It actually takes the time to slow down. Mm-hmm. Nothing has to be happening every five seconds, you know, for the attention deficit crowd. Um, and you actually get to know some of the characters. 
What? You can no. actually remember their names after they've been introduced. <laughs> you know? Uh, it actually tells a story. And um, usually the story has some subtext. Like Star Trek should. So how much does it feel like the original series? Because I know that's the vibe they're going for. Um, and it doesn't really feel like the original mm-hmm. series, i got to say. I mean, it's still very much a modern show. You right. know, it, it's shot in a modern fashion. That, um, but it's not as crazily edited as like Discovery is. Okay. And it's much smarter than Picard. I mean, it's not perfect Trek. It's not the next generation, you know. I mean, nothing can be. That's that's one of the things that, like, as fans of some of these things, we have to come to terms with. Right. And like, let's not forget the first two seasons of TNG weren't exactly great. Right. It had to find its footing. Yeah. Um, but out of the gate, this one's starting pretty strong, and I have high hopes for it. So if, if you like Star Trek, but you have not liked newer content, give Strange New Worlds a try. I recommend it. Cool. I like that you somehow make a Star Trek reference every episode, and now you've worked it up to... <laughs> I try to. I think I've yeah. missed a couple, but I try. <laughs> I knew from when they brought in Pike, though, to Discovery. Yeah, Anson Mount's awesome. He's so charismatic mm-hmm. and so fun to watch. Mm-hmm. He was what Discovery was missing. Right. And then... A character you actually really like. And, and he's not a dick. Yeah. Like, he's actually... And that's the problem with those shows. Everyone's snarky and addicted to each other. I mean, I like Captain like, Lorca, but he's like my kind of villain. Right. Or something. So yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm in on that. But Lorca was great the yeah. whole first season. Like, and then he's not in it anymore. And then you're like, yeah. oh, well, okay. Well, I mean, he's, <laughs> he's kind of what I loved about the whole thing. The show's, uh, the character's just, I mean, you're supposed to be, you're still, it's a military operation, right? There's a hierarchy of ranks. And you shouldn't be saying stuff like, Science is fucking awesome, you know, to your commanding officer and shit like that. It's just, what the fuck? Yeah. In the future, it's yeah, different. I guess so. it's different in the future. All right, well, that's our Star Trek minicast within the actual podcast. Yeah. So today we are kicking off our series on anthology films, which is not so much a genre as it is a type of movie because it can encompass many different genres. That's okay. There's no fucking rules here. Right. Yeah, we're free willing. We do what we want. So we're talking about Dead of Night from 1945. It's uh, with Erling Studios. There's several different directors in the mix. But first, since this is a new new region for us, we're going to define what we're talking about a little bit. So what, if I can ask you to, is an anthology film? I need to come up with like some theme music for like these segments, <laughs> like when we go into a new thing. <laughs> well, I would describe an anthology film as being a movie with several different stories that usually are not interconnected in the movie, like short stories. It's like a collection of short stories put in motion. Cool. Yeah. I'm with that. Yeah. Yep. So here's some alternate titles we have. It could be called an omnibus film, a package film, or a portmanteau film. And if you want to get real drilled into the specifics, here's like the official definition. It is a single film consisting of several shorter films, each complete in itself and distinguished from the others, though sometimes tied together by a single theme, premise, or author. Sometimes each one has a different director or is written by a different author, or they may have even been made at different times or in different countries. And you can distinguish these from what's known as review films, because those were very common in Hollywood in the early decades, and that was where they would just shoot like certain parts of like a live stage show, yeah, and then kind of string them together, right. and that was just to like bring you the stage experience in the theater. 
which they I think Fathom Events still kind of does that. Mm-hmm. They do yeah. some like operas, operas and stuff. Like yeah. That, yeah. Um, so very different in that respect. Um, some general things to know. Often there is like a theme that unifies the stories. That could be a place, uh, could be a person, a certain character, or it could be a thing or a concept. And that will usually be like the tie that binds them together. It has some sort of narrative significance mm-hmm. or meaning. Uh, and then also the other big sometimes element, there's often, but not always, a top-level story or a framing device that will string together each sub-story. A.K.A. a wraparound. Yes. So if we're talking about these two of the earliest films to ever do this, were uh, Edmund Golding's The Grand, uh, Grand Hotel from 1932. That was released by MGM. And then Paramount's If I Had a Million Dollars. If, no, no. It's, if I Had a Million. If I Had a Million. Yep. Yeah, My so. notes were a little jacked up. You were just going for the Bare Naked Ladies. Yep. Ooh. Ooh. I hate that you brought that up. Because <laughs> now you got to listen. No. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Paramount's If I Had he a Million. He said it. He's the one who said If I Had a Million Dollars. Uh-huh. It's a Bare Naked Ladies song. In your I'm glad I didn't know that. <laughs> You're looking, you have a blank. Stay, stay innocent, Jason. You're stay like innocent. just blank face. You're like, I. I was thinking Naked Ladies. I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah. No, Jason, the titular Canadian pop band, Bare Naked Ladies. Mm, Jesus. Michael and I were just that age to. Yeah. Sometimes it's good on to that. be older. It is. Uh, in Europe, you had a lot of this too. You had directors like Roberto Rossellini. Rossellini. Um, he did films like L'Amour. <laughs> Thank you, Jason, for that. Um. He was so proud of himself, too. Like, as soon as he said it, he was so proud. Like, ooh. Uh, L'Amour, which was uh, 1948. You had stuff like... Um, American Studios followed up with stuff like Quartet in 1948, and that was based on the stories of um, W.S. Somerset Maugham. So a lot of these would pull from fiction, which we see that in later things that... Even this one we're covering today, it also pulled a bit from a fictional source... Because that, to me, is like a good spot to adapt a short story. Oh, sure. Uh, often, and maybe we'll talk about this one day if we do like shorts adapted as film. When you take a short story and try to blow it up into a full feature length, mm-hmm. you, you get into like wavy territory on doing that. Yeah, we you talked about that the whole point. Yeah. On our last episode with mm-hmm. The Cellar. Yeah. yeah. That good example. It would have been much better had you not. So sometimes this anthology film, that's like the right way if... If all the stars are aligned in the top, especially right. for horror, I think mm-hmm. I think anthologies work best for horror personally. Um, some early examples with frame stories are things like Intolerance in 1916, very early example. Uh, Tales of Manhattan from 1942, notably Dead of Night, which we're talking about today. Root. Uh, on the horror front, which is something we always care about, it was Dead of Night that we're talking about. That was kind of like the urtext that really inspired the horror angle on all of this. Ooh, Urtex, good um, word. Yeah, I like that word. There were ones before Dead of Night. There's a German one from 1919. I'm going to try to say this. Do it. Unheimlich gestreichen. I probably said that wrong. I think you did. I'm almost <laughs> certain you did. <laughs> yeah, it's out there. Look it up. Do we, have any, it... Do we have any listeners in Germany? I... Once or twice we've gotten some hits there, so maybe. Yeah. Write in and correct me, please. It's my goal to learn. <laughs> um, and then inspired by Dead of Night, the British company Amicus made several yeah. anthology horror films in the 60s the and 70s. of anthology, in my opinion. Uh, some bigger name stuff. In 89, we had New York Stories, which had segments directed by Martin Scorsese, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, and Woody Allen. Never seen that one. It's, it's pretty good. I like it. <laughs> Glowing <laughs> review. <Yeah. laughs> it's, it's safe. It's beyond yeah. the scope of our thing. Um... 
There's also The Red Violin from 1998. That's considered a portmanteau film because the storylines revolve around different owners of a, the same violin over the centuries. So there you've got an object as kind of your through line to the different stories that go on. Mm, sort of like uh, Hellraiser 4 and the Lament configuration. Yeah, actually. That <laughs> okay. would be a fair, fair assessment. Good. If you want to bring that into the mix. <laughs> I just want you to have to put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> and I will. Uh, horror anthologies on that front. Uh, some great ones we should mention that you should just probably look into. We've got uh, Trilogy of Terror from 1975. Classic. Which well, actually, is... the first two suck, but the third story is amazing. And that's another thing we'll get into about anthology films, I think. Part of why, last time I said, they're always a good time. Like, even if it's a one-star film, one of those segments is going to be something that you're like, yeah, I'm kind of into that. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah. There's usually at least one yeah. stellar segment that just makes it worth watching. I have only got one that I can say that I've loved every segment in it. Mm -hmm. What's that? Trick or Treat. Oh, Trick or Treat's great. Agreed, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I... Some are weaker than others. I think Creepshow's pretty solid all the way through. Yeah, I'll give you that. Mm -hmm. I'll give you that. Which, in 1982, Creepshow, that's another one we should mention. And my future pick is pretty solid all the way through. <laughs> um, there were television shows that were anthology series. Same premise, each episode is its own standalone story, and that includes stuff like Twilight Zone, Tales from the Dark Side, which those also ended up having theatrical film versions as well. Outer Limits. Outer Limits, another great one. Uh, Tales from the Crypt, which had the film, and then later the TV show spawned around that. Mm -hmm. uh, 1995 Tells from the Hood I always like to mention that one yeah that's a good one very great uh, black horror themed mm -hmm. anthology and on and on and on a very modern one we should talk about 2012's VHS which has had what four five sequels uh, now thereabouts four I think uh, I love them all and they're the epitome of there's that one good segment and then the rest vary yeah the first one has one or two just solid segments mm -hmm. two's pretty good two's pretty solid second one and of course we now are in the streaming age and that is no stranger to this either uh, a notable one i thought was worth mentioning since we've done westerns this year 2018 netflix had the coen brothers anthology film the ballad of buster scruggs oh, yeah, i, I haven't watched i want to watch that yeah. i haven't done it i've had it highly recommended to me several times i'm like mixed on the coen brothers so i've, I've put it i usually off, like the coen brothers a lot it depends so I think that's everything as far as grounding ourselves about anthology films. Mm -hmm. I think is everyone anything... gets the idea of what an anthology film is. Now, I want to bring up something, because uh, I had not encountered this term until I started looking into it a little bit, but hyperlink cinema. I'm glad you brought that up, because I actually have a listener question for this topic, Okay, and it kind of relates to that. So, friend of the show, Colin, shout out to Colin. He listens in from now on. Now hey, on Colin! Again. Used to be in our movie club, cool guy. He posed this question to me because he's always asking what we're talking about. <laughs> I usually am too. And, um, <laughs> and I told him we were doing anthologies and he said, well, I've got a question for the show that you should suss this out. Is a film like Jew on the Grudge an anthology film? No. Okay. Why not? Because I think it's all interconnected. You know, there's cause and effect. Um, another good example would be like Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the characters come in and out, some actions in, in one segment influence the others. Things are connected in some mm -hmm. way. I've seen some people try to argue Pulp Fiction as an anthology film, and I don't buy that because I think everything is part of the main story. Right. See, I wanted a better answer because I get his point. There's distinct chapters that are a story that's that person's story. Mm -hmm. And there is a through line that connects them in between because each, each little chunk of that is like a different time period some before, some after. 
So technically, if you like do the raw definition, maybe it kind of is. It's not listed anywhere online as that. So clearly, there's some there's some like not connecting piece. Yeah, I mean, you're getting down to the nitty gritty when mm. you start, you know. So tell us about hyperlink films, Jason, because this is what I came across when I was trying to trying to find a satisfying answer. Uh, well, I think the definition would be something. Like, I'll just read it. Uh, style of filmmaking characterized by complex or multilinear narrative structures, which are used in ways that are informed by the World Wide Web. Yes. Now, that's interesting. I guess that's yep. where the hyperlink comes into oh. it. Um, I don't... That's kind of a weird definition, though, because that doesn't pertain to, like, Pulp Fiction or something. So, I have a little more additional stuff that I sussed out about these. Mm-hmm. So, you don't need to think of them as actual, like, hypermedia, like a page with links. More that they're multi-linear in a metaphorical sense. Um, it plays with the time, with characters' histories. Plot twists might happen earlier that are relevant later. That's no, Pulp Fiction. Interwoven storylines between multiple characters, jumping between the beginning and the end, both flashbacks and flash-forwards in the same feature. Hmm. I mean, you're talking also Reservoir Dogs on that one mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah, like Reservoir yeah, Dogs, ways, Pulp yeah. Fiction, like... Although I think Reservoir Dogs has more um, traditional flashbacks. Yeah, true. There are so many that it could be, yeah. And I don't often like to quote him, but Roger Ebert said this about hyperlink cinema. He said, It's films where the characters or action reside in their own separate stories, but a connection or influence between those disparate stories is slowly revealed to the audience and becomes fully realized by the end. Yeah. Well, you That's could, a good definition. I mean, Trick or Treat falls in that. It does, but I don't think it because mm. you've got um, oh, the principal's storyline interweaves that, into two. But not the whole... That's true. Yeah. yeah. Thing. Oh, I don't know. But there is a little bit of that. He's in at least three of them. So here's the interesting rub to it all. Uh, in the list I found of hyperlink cinema, Pulp Fiction is on there. That's mm. a good example. That's like a prime example. No one's ever listed the grudge or described it as that. And I don't think I've ever seen Trick or Treat on there either, so... Well, The Grudge is definitely not yeah. an anthology or hyperlink, in my opinion. And also, how much of it is intent? True. Like, you know, are you setting it? Because I think when we think of anthology films, and the three that we're going to talk about are very specifically, intentionally mm-hmm. different stories within one main story. And I would argue that The Grudge is actually about interconnectivity, about how actions influence mm-hmm. other people. Jason, I loved what you just said. <laughs> Thank you. Great answer. Um, yeah, so that's just some food for thought. I thought that was a good question to discuss, just uh, the the little like blurred lines around anthologies and where that goes. Interesting. Like that Robin Thicke song. Mm, let's not bring up that song either. What is with you tonight, Michael? What is Michael? going Jeez. on, man? I don't know. You're just bringing up all the weird music. I don't, well, so my son has started recently dancing. Oh, that's cute. And he like will hear music, but he has his favorites, and one of them is Seagulls Stop It Now. Um, like right. that, like com- that, too, that so. comes on and he just immediately starts jamming. But my mom is trying to get him to dance and she puts on all this absolutely shitty pop music. I hope not Robin Thicke. Uh, it popped on and like it was on the YouTube channel. I was like, and she's like, he's not dancing. I was like, because this music sucks. You <laughs> should learn to dance to the oldies like I did. Like how old? Like the oldies. 1920s jazz? 50s and 60s, and 60s man. Well, yeah, my mom I mean, would spin the records and... Yeah. I guess that's why all this shitty pop culture stuff is in my head right now. Cool. So, Dead of Night. <laughs> 1945. <laughs> Erling Studios. This is their only attempt at doing a horror film. 
Which I mean, if you're just gonna, good if you're just gonna make one, this like, yeah, may as well. <laughs> they did it. And they were like, well, yeah. we can't really get any better than this. They just so. said we don't need to make a horror film anymore. Uh, they prepped it throughout the year of 1944, and then they shot it in the early winter months of 45. So I guess they dropped it right at the end of the year, or I don't know. That was just a fun fact I found mm-hmm. during wartime, which is yep. interesting because most horror films were banned. Yep, that was the next thing I wanted to bring up, Jason. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So No one wanted the disturbing content in the cinema because apparently there was plenty to go around in real life. Mm -hmm. I don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) So here's a basic little synopsis for this film. Mm -hmm. Architect Walter Craig, seeking the possibility of some work at a country farmhouse, soon finds himself once again stuck in his reoccurring nightmare. Dreading the end of the dream that he knows is coming, he must first listen to the assembled guest's own Tales of the Bazaar. Classic, classic wraparound. I mean, this this movie really did solidify what anthologies would become. It oh, almost yeah. feels... Especially for horror. It's yeah. interesting, because when you're watching it, it almost feels cliche in a lot of ways, yeah. but it's because it created them. Yeah, this, right. this is the one that did it. And you're, you're watching it, and you're like, I know where this well, is going to go. And that's the thing. There's A modern audience watching this movie, there's no surprises. Right. You know, but you got to put yourself in the mindset of when this was made, when it came out. And Having been the loser that hadn't seen this yet, um, <laughs> I hadn't seen it. Well, you were right there with me. We're so, both losers, man. We Yo, are not the scene east I am. Um, the the surprises <laughs> were to me like seeing stuff, and I'm like, oh, this is where that came uh-huh. from. Yeah, this is where all this shit got ripped off of. Yeah. Mm. All right, so we open with Walter Craig, and he's driving through the countryside. He's driving a 1938 Sunbeam Talbot 10. That's sweet. Awesome looking vehicle. Yeah. It's like something you would see in the Call of Cthulhu or something, mm-hmm. game or something. Uh, very idyllic countryside. He kind of stops at one point, and you can see the house there kind of back from the road. Pulls up, parks, and he's greeted by, uh, was it Elliot Foley? Elliot yeah. Foley. Played by Roland Culver. He does a great job. I quite like him. In this this is all very English. Very, yes. very English. Very British. Very proper. And we quickly find out he's there to consult about doing some renovations to their home. As the synopsis said, this guy's an architect and kind of works on contract. Mm-hmm. But he's also immediately unsettled when he gets there. Right. From the moment he steps out of his car, you can tell there's kind of something... He's troubled by something. And, and they do a good job of, like, at first they don't really tell you what's what's the deal. Mm-hmm. It's like he knows where to put his coat and stuff when he comes in, mm-hmm. when he's never been there before. And I like that because it's super subtle, but it's like mm-hmm. they plant those seeds. And I think on a rewatch, you appreciate that stuff a lot more. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's brought into the home. And then the sitting room, they have all these people that are gathered that just happen to be there. And um, I forget, what was the reason they were actually there? Different reasons, right? Yeah, one of the, one of the people is, is, is uh, Foley's, the, the owner's mother. Mm-hmm. And I think his wife shows up too at some point, doesn't she? Or is it someone else's wife? Anyway, there are some... That's the wife. They're kind of contrived reasons, but I think that's the point. There's that's, one that's like yeah. the, the teenage girl, Sally. She's just there because she apparently pops over all the time. Yeah. That's a plot point later. Well, I, I mean, it. what you say is right, though, because once you get the finale of the film, you realize it doesn't matter. Right. But yeah. And part of the point is that by coincidence, they're all there somehow. Right. Yeah, and he's like they're being introduced to Craig, and he's not shaking their hands or anything. He's looking confused, and he's like, mm-hmm. I, I, "I've seen you all before. I've, I've had this dream, and it's just like this." Right, and they they immediately they're kind of like amused by this idea, and they kind of talk about the logistics of that. If you could have a dream that was prophetic, 
and actually like be realized. Yeah, and there's this uh, doctor guy, Doctor Van Straten, who's there. God, I loved him. Yeah, played by <laughs> Frederick Volk, and he's, he's like a psychologist, I guess. So <laughs> fucking obnoxious, and I love him. <laughs> yeah, so they're all talking to him about, oh, well, how can you discount all these stories? And basically, they're trying to prove that supernatural things happen. They were wanting him to admit that, yeah, Look, Jason, things happen. I know the supernatural isn't something that's supposed to happen, <laughs> but it does <laughs> happen. Yeah, because he sets it up first. He gives a few little, like, well, this is going to happen. And then it, like, does right immediately after. Mm-hmm. And so some yeah, of... Yeah, a strange woman's going to show up, a brunette yeah. who has no money. And that's when the guy's wife shows up, and she mm-hmm. had no cash to pay for the taxi or something. Right. And so they're like, well, obviously, boom, there it is. There's mm-hmm. your proof. And a lot of the rest of the film and this, what this frame story is, it's cruxed around them each telling a story of something weird they experienced to Dr. Stratton to try to convince him. And then him being this like, you know, cold, dedicated to mm-hmm. science and the truth, kind of like cuts those down and tries to explain how they could be reasonably nothing supernatural. And I got to point out that this doctor guy is wearing the world's smallest tie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the world's shortest tie. It's just distractingly short. And um, <laughs> they set up a few things that don't pay off till later. Like they, they mentioned that the doctor's going to break his glasses. Mm-hmm. And that, that takes a while to pay yeah, off. Yeah, that happens near the end. Um, but the, the crux of kind of like the underlying terror of all of this, he doesn't quite remember his dream, but Walter knows that at the end of it, something terrible happens. Right. It's inevitable. Mm-hmm. So the first guy to tell his story is a race car driver. Yep, Hugh Granger. Yes. Uh, he talks about how he had accidents racing at cars. And let uh, me stop you right there. When uh-huh. it when it cuts to his story and you see the racetrack, a, a 1940s. <laughs> That's insane, dude. It is fucking insane. It's scary. The, yeah. the stunt that they did when they actually wrecked the car mm. and you see the body just fly up. I yes. think that was an actual wreck. It, it was, uh, yeah, it was 100% an actual wreck. Cause there's, a dude probably died there. I, no, he got up and ran. Oh, okay. He might have died later. Yeah. Um, but, like, you know, you see the car wreck and the driver gets thrown yeah. and it's like, holy shit. <laughs> it's yeah, really it's, fucking it's violent. It's like, as a kid, family members took me to, like, a NASCAR race. And it was, to me, it was just very boring, right? You just sit there and they kind of go in a circle and it's very... But I can see how, like, back in the day, everyone's going to the racetrack because it's like... You're guaranteed Yeah, just blood. insanity. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he's in a terrible, terrible wreck. Rick. So he's Rick. recuperating. Rick. Rick. Oh, he's back to Australia. Ter- he's in a terrible Rick. He's exploitation about this one. He's uh, in a terrible wreck. Our apologies. No, to I'm leaving it. You can say it all you want. <laughs> I'm going to leave it. He is in a terrible wreck. <laughs> yeah, he's recuperating in the hospital and he's macking on this nurse. Oh, yeah, so, they're kind of flirting. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. but God, he's obnoxious. I know it's a product of the time, but there are times where... Oh, there's very much a lot of products of the time in oh, this yeah. movie. But, yeah, there's... Including some racism that I was like, ooh. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to that. Yeah, but when he's, like, grabbing at her, and you're like, dude, just fucking keep your hands to yourself, Yeah, man. she's a medical professional. Leave her alone. Oh, but how you know that it's true um, is that uh, uh, she shit-talks the doctor while, yeah. <laughs> while she's taking care of Yeah, him. that's true. <laughs> I was like, well, this is pretty accurate. <laughs> So while he's recuperating, he's like looking out the window and he sees this boss, horse-drunk uh, hearse yep. down there on the street. And the driver looks up at him and says, well, is it room for one more, sir. Yep. Now, did you notice who this guy was? 
I actually did not. Miles Mallison? Yes. I don't know who he is. I just have IMD pulled, pulled up. <laughs> uh, he was in some significant Hammer films. Okay, see, he, he was, looked so familiar. Yeah, when I saw he him. was in Horror of Dracula. He okay. was the Undertaker. Oh, cool. Because um, his tone of voice, too. Oh, shit. He's in Hound of Baskervilles. Hound of the Baskervilles. Mm. Nice. Brides of Dracula. Um, Peeping Tom, a really good British Ooh. movie, which might be watched someday for this podcast. But this is classic, right? Like, you, if you have watched horror films for any length of time, you've probably gotten to a story at some point, either in fiction or film or anywhere, or TV, where you have this whole, like, room for one more yeah. concept. You keep seeing the same guy, which he does. He sees him later. He's driving a bus. Or he's the conductor or whatever of the bus. At 999 happy haunts, and there's always <laughs> room for one more. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so when he sees the conductor, same guy is on the hearse, says, just room for one more inside, sir. Uh, you decides not to get on this bus mm-hmm. and the bus immediately crashes. Yeah. But it immediately pulls away, hits the intersection and gets T-boned. Yeah. Boom. Everyone on the bus dies. Yeah. Now it's final destination. <laughs> I thought about that when I watched it. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is uh-huh. also like the urtext for final destination. Yeah. yeah. I'm just going to say that word as many times as I can. I think you should. I think it, yeah. Take a shot every time. And that's the end of that story. It's a very, very abrupt ending. One of my only... I have a handful, but one of my few criticisms for this film is that I think that this segment is too short. I don't know how you could extend it, but there's nothing wrong with it like it is, but... Yeah, I just wanted, wanted yeah. more there. It's kind of like, let's dip our toes in mm-hmm. sort of a thing, but yeah. you want more. Like, I ain't dipping my toes. I'm jumping all the fuck in, man. Yeah, or maybe it should have been like he was on the bus and it crashed, but he was the only survivor, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. I don't I don't know. But yeah, kind of an abrupt story. He keeps escaping death somehow, sort <laughs> yeah. of thing. It sets a tone, though. Yep, and it's one where I think the order of the stories matter because this one is so easy for Dr. Stratton to play off. Right. Because it, it clearly could have just been a coincidence. Yeah, you suffered a trauma. You're going to be seeing, you know, these things. And that's what he says. He says you you were still like afraid of what happened with the crash, so you didn't get on the bus because of that. It mm-hmm. didn't matter who the conductor was. Right. Yep. So that's their kind of first little setup, and then the next story we get is Sally's. Mm-hmm. She was at a Christmas party at a mansion, mm-hmm. and this is back when Christmas parties rocked. Apparently, because everyone's in costume, they were yep. like costume parties. And uh, even back then, I think they would still tell like ghost stories and stuff on Christmas Eve. Christmas they were was cooler. They were a British tradition. Yeah. They were flirting around Christmas Carol too. Yeah. Some of the. Did you hear the rattling chains? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Even then, they were talking about the uh, tropes. Yeah. About the cliches and stuff. Uh, but yeah, so they decided to play hide and seek. There's a boy, uh, Jimmy, that's like a little closer to her age. <laughs> yes, he's very enthusiastic, this Jimmy. Was well, I alone in thinking Sally was just super cute? No, Sally's very she's adorable. Cute. Okay. Yeah, she's very yeah. pretty. Uh, she's played by Sally Ann Howes. Mm-hmm. The picture they have on IMDb is not the same one of her in the movie, and I'm <laughs> well, disappointed. Years yeah. later, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, which one is she? Oh. Yeah, yeah but she is adorable in this yeah, film. She's very cute. So they do hide and seek, and she has to go hide, and everyone else seeks her. Jimmy gets a little uh, little handsy. Yeah, Jimmy immediately finds her. And I was like, oh, well, now we have to hide together. Yeah, it's, they're playing sardines. So he's like, well, now that I found you, we have to pack in. Right. And then he's like, well, it's like, a little, little cold in here. Don't yeah. worry. Yeah. It's little... pretty smooth, honestly. You know, I got to. And he says, you know, run with me. We'll go find a better place. And he takes her to a room off all on its own. Yeah. And then he tells her a ghost story that there was a murder in the house once. Mm-hmm. It was, well, he, he doesn't have like details, but he Murder. says something about how he's it, vague about it. Yeah, like uh, a sister killed her brother. Yeah, 
And so he gets a little handsy with her. She kind of like rebuffs him, rebuffs him and then sneaks off on her own. Mm -hmm. And she finds a random door and takes it. And she ends up in this very well, well kept, well put together nursery. Mm -hmm. And she hears a little boy crying. So she goes, she thinks it's maybe just one of the little kids at the party. And maybe he kind of got off on his own and got lost and is upset. And the boy's wearing like early 19th century clothing. But Which, because, is, of the, yeah. because of the costume yeah. party, that doesn't raise any suspicion. Right. It's so Little subtle decisions are so great in this film. Yeah, so she thinks he's just one of the kids. And she talks to him. His name is Francis Kent. And she kind of consoles him. She's very sweet to him. Like, she tucks him in the bed. Yeah. Sings him a little song. She's and he's got like, a good I wish you voice. were my sister. Yeah. Because my sister's mean. And you're nice. And <laughs> <laughs> then he starts macking on her. <laughs> oh, well, I, didn't, I don't think I watched the same movie. Oh, Oh, oh yeah, that was a stepsister. That was something oh, else. God. Damn it. I'm getting confused. I'm sorry. Wow. So she tucks him in. He goes to sleep. And she makes her way back to the party because no one found her. They, they couldn't find her at all. They searched the whole mansion. Yep. And when she connects back with them, she asks about the little boy. And we have the whole classic like ghost story thing where yeah, like, what are you, what are you talking, talking about? about? What little boy? Yeah. And she says the name, Francis Kent. And they're like, well, and Jimmy's like, oh, well, you knew the story all along. That was the, the kid's name. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, my God. And yeah. then we see the photo of the former family, and it is the little boy. Yeah. And that's pretty uh, much where that, where that one's <laughs> off. So. Again, I mean, yeah, this is 1945. You're going to see this. How many times have you seen this trope since then? You're not going to be surprised mm-hmm. watching this movie. But It's short. It's super effective. Yeah. But it's a master class on how to do it. Right. And it's important to know... Where these things came from, mm-hmm. you know, cinematic history and all that good stuff. I have a good note about this segment too. That whole story of like the the Kent person being murdered by his sister—it's based on a true event. Hmm. So it was uh, Francis, who was aged four at the time, was murdered at Road Hill House in 1860. His half sister Constance, 16 at the time, was arrested and put on trial in 1865. After serving 20 years in jail, she was released and immigrated to Australia. Where she died in the age of 100, only one year before the release of this movie. Wow. Which is pretty weird when you think about it. That is pretty weird. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> huh. Neat. Yep. It turns out that we've been doing an anthology podcast all along. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's interconnected. Yeah. Just for this. I think the, the next story is my favorite. The third story is very strong. Yeah, here's where we start to ramp up a little bit in mm-hmm. these stories. This is where we get like... Twilight Zone level. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rock solid. Um, this is Joan Cortland, and she tells a story about her husband. Mm-hmm. And Joan is the uh, brunette that is going to, that at the beginning, um, Walter says is going to show up, right? I think she was the one who's already there. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Damn. She's the one that's already there, and that she, like, from the start, believed Walter about his story. That's yeah, right. Never mind. Oh, and I also want to point out how everyone is constantly smoking in this movie. Oh, yes. <laughs> it cuts back to the frame story, and they're just all chain smoking yeah. about to light up. When did, I also want to know, when did we stop as a culture drinking schnapps? I don't think <laughs> everyone has. Because it's like, I love, one of my favorite things about all these films and the Hammer films is like, everybody's like... Pouring schnapps and brandy. Yeah, or <laughs> sherry or something. And they're like, get the, or this, one of the dudes in here is like, get him with some schnapps. Yeah. Where'd the schnapps go? Yeah, schnapps are good too. I got some uh, sherry in my bar over there. We should just I didn't like, open that up. Yeah, hmm. for 
And you know, homage to this episode. Yeah. Is it, Where's the snaps? <laughs> is it right after Sally's story, or is it after this next one that she leaves? Because that's one of his prophecies that he has, that she won't be there. Uh, I think it's after this one. Yeah. But I'm not entirely sure. I think sure. We'll, we'll wait on talking about that. Because that's like a significant thing. Because, yeah, it must be after this next one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the frame story gets a little wishy for me, because... It, yeah, there's kind of a lot of back yep. and forth and stuff. Yeah, so Joan's story, she buys her husband a mirror for his birthday. It's kind of an ornate mm-hmm. mirror. Nice. It's got like three pieces and stuff. And when he sets it up and looks into it, first everything's kind of okay, seems fine. Hmm. And then one day he's looking into it by himself, and what he sees in the reflection, he's there, but the room behind him is totally different because it's in his bedroom and it's kind of like the wall facing the bed. Mm-hmm. So normally behind him he'll see his bed and like one of the doors. But when he looks, it's this very lavish like mansion study almost yeah there's this big fireplace a four poster bed mm-hmm. paneled walls and everything and it makes them makes them feel weird there's some yeah, good like <laughs> psychological horror going on in this one uh-huh. well it kind uh-huh. of it kind of carries on back and forth between the two of them and they're not actually married yet yeah, they're like, about they're, to get married they're about to get married and and they like she starts to notice that he's starting to pull away a mm-hmm. bit, starting to become a little bit more withdrawn and a, a little more aloof, and he finally admits to her. I like the way they portrayed their relationship too. That like, he she did like keep on him to open up, and he actually did like finally engage with her about that. Oh, there, and was, there was something that was super um, timely, which I, I thought was a great line, is when he finally breaks on her, and he's like. You don't have to nag me. Mm-hmm. And like immediately the scene stops and you're like, oh, yeah. fuck, dude. Mm-hmm. Record scratch. But then he immediately apologizes. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that we don't see that as much anymore. Like we always think about like, oh, the olden days, there's so much masculinity and everything. No, this dude like immediately realizes and it's sincere. Yep. And he's like, ah, oh, shit. Yeah, there's never been an excuse to treat your wife like shit, you know, no matter what time period you're in. But it, like, I don't know. There's always all these hearkenings back to being <laughs> like, oh, the, they weren't like this in the old days. No. Right. It was just being a good human being. And, yeah. he, and yes. he's just like, I'm so sorry. You yeah. know I don't mean that. I didn't mean to do that. Um, and, and I do like, too, that she tells him, you should go see the doctor. Mm-hmm. And he says, I already have. Yeah. Which I think is great for the 40s to be like, yeah, I've already realized, like, I think I might need some help. Because right, for so long, there was that stigma of, like, you only go if you're crazy. Yeah. And, and he's like, no, I've already been, and they can't find anything wrong with me. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's fucking mirror is weird <laughs> so she kind of takes the obvious route which is just to say well take the mirror down i don't it's nothing to me it was mm-hmm. a gift but whatever but it he has a weird like it's almost like a compulsion mm-hmm. it starts to like control over him like maybe there's some other film with a mirror that exerts its evil influence uh jason oculus yeah perhaps <laughs> yeah get more of those those connecting points oh, Ur- sure. the urtext for oculus mm-hmm. let's just load this episode with so many references that dustin's like god damn it he's <laughs> typing for like 10 days excellent um so eventually and they move to a different place yeah. the house they're gonna move into once they're married and they take the mirror there but and things are better for a little while like mm-hmm. he's not as affected by it they have a cool scene too where it's, i think it's right before they move and they're still in the apartment and she gets behind him beside him and holds his hand and says look in the mirror and you know, see me there with you. And mm-hmm. at first when he looks, she's not there. It's like she's invisible in the mirror. And he is just seeing that projection of the room with him in it. And then she like keeps insisting him to like, you know, acknowledge that she's there too. And then finally he looks and she is there. 
and then it goes back to being that regular right. apartment room. And that's when he gets better for a while. Mm. But I liked how that was shot. and Yeah, yeah it was done well. But nothing good lasts. Nope. Not with a haunted mirror. He starts getting even worse, and like you said, more obsessed with the mirror. Um, and she's out shopping with her mother at one point and comes up across the antique shop where she bought the mirror. So she goes in to ask the dude about it. I like this guy. No, wait, no, she sees the bed. Yes. She sees the four-poster bed through the window, which is like the one that he described because it was very specific. It had like grapes mm-hmm. gra- engraved into it. And, stuff and the, like. yeah. the shopkeep, I liked him. He just seemed like a cool character actor oh, yeah. over the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, we bought all, it at an auction. All too willing to tell everyone the backstory. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love that he, he sits her in a chair. It's like, okay, you can just yeah, sit down for this. this. I'm going to be a while. <laughs> I've got a lot of backstory on this furniture. You should have gotten a snack. <laughs> uh, but we learned that the mirror's previous owner, Francis... Etherington killed his wife because he suspected her of adultery. Mm-hmm. And then he sat down in front of the mirror and slit his own throat. Yeah, which is pretty... I mean, they don't show it, of course, but it's still kind of a gruesome image. It's a heavy concept. Load, yeah. yeah. And we notice that when it goes back to her husband, he is now starting to get that, like... Because I think the whole trip thing happens with her mother, and so she's gone for a few days. Yeah. And when she goes, he's, like, just joking about it. He's like, oh, what am I going to do around here? But when she comes back, he's like, you've been cheating on me. Mm-hmm. What is it? No play. She has, it's like a driver or an assistant or something. It's an admirer of hers named yeah. Guy that she's kind of been playing around with. Not that kind of playing around Whoa. with. But it's a little mean, actually. Some, in some in the opening it. segment, yeah. they joke about him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that part does kind of. Like, she was kind of stringing him along. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe he was a jerk. Who knows? But yeah, he, beyond the, the scope of the, the story. husband is saying that. Oh, you've been cheating on me with guy, and, and I've known stuff. about it this whole time. I've known what you're doing, <laughs> right? And he straight up tries to strangle her. Yeah, but the mirror is smashed. Yep. And in a moment of triumph, she manages to break the mirror, which that, breaks the spell. I was a little bit worried for the actress because that looked like they just broke a real mirror. They totally just broke a real mirror. <laughs> and it, when she's trying to break it, I'm like, oh, shit, she's going to cut Yeah, her when hand. she's like tearing it apart and yeah. stuff. I was like, oh, <laughs> she's going to rip her hands open. I love that she goes for it, too, because once it breaks and he's out of the spell of this thing, she still keeps like tearing it down. Yeah, she doesn't want it. it. And he's yeah. like, we can have it mended. Why'd you do that? <laughs> uh-uh, nope, nope, nope. Haunted mirror definitely getting burned, salted and burned. No questions. That's one of my favorite ones. Because yeah, I think that really one, super fun. That one was the most uh, Twilight Zone for me. Yeah, I think it had that that feel. Yeah, and a lot of the movie, a lot of the segments have the same kind of timeless feel, but this one in particular. I also love haunted furniture. Oh yeah, always. Yeah, and the story could be set in any time period and still work. Mm-hmm. Which Amityville, they did a haunted mirror uh, for oh, one of their Jesus sequels. Christ. Is there any furniture they haven't haunted <laughs> in the entire Amityville it's a dollhouse, series? Dollhouse, clock. the clock, yeah. Yeah, they, they've hit most of it. They have a lamp. <laughs> Corkscrew. <Yeah>. <laughs> Haunted microwave. We need the Amityville yard sale. <laughs> that guy who's running that shop selling things, he's like, you're going to want to sit down. I've got a story about these for you. That microwave. <laughs> you know, that shopkeep too, it made me think of uh, Friday the 13th, the TV series. Because that is an anthology horror series that's cruxed around an antique shop with cursed objects. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Cool. So I think this is now where in the frame story we get the bit about um, he he thinks that uh, what is he's supposed to be that he hits Sally or pushes her or something and then she's going to leave or something and she decides she's going to stay. Or no, no, the thing is that she's going to leave mm-hmm. in his dream. That's what happens. And so she says, well, then I'm going to stay. And if I stay, it breaks the cycle of your dream. 
and whatever bad is going on, it won't happen. Smart move on her part. Yep. She's very clever. However, then her mother shows up and makes her leave. Right. It's an emergency. Mm-hmm. And so that, like... Inescapable fate, Yeah, man. again, the, the blocks keep stacking up on mm-hmm. this. And the next story is definitely the weakest. Yep. It's, it's, and this, actually, this was also used in a lot of anthologies afterward. There's usually kind of a lighter episode in most anthologies. Mm-hmm. And I get getting a, a palate cleanser, especially after a particularly scary one. And this is told by Foley, the guy that called him in. Yeah, but it's still a bit too light. Yeah, it's, I mean, a, it's really played for laughs. It was my least favorite segment for sure. Yeah. It's about two golfers. And apparently these guys played characters very much similar to these in the Lady Vanishes Hitchcock movie. Mm-hmm. These are kind of like archetypical. Yeah, and they like made a career out of playing yeah. the same characters in different I, movies. It was weird to read about and research on that. It kind of made me think, I guess if you think of something like Abbott and Costello, yeah. it was kind of like a bit like that. Yeah. But not as good. Yeah. But they're both in love with the same woman. And one of the men is just noticeably older than the other one. And Yes. I mean... I think it's supposed to be funny, but... I, is it funny? I don't know. I didn't uh, laugh. But the, the woman... <laughs> the woman, what's her name? Mary, I think? Yeah, cannot decide Mary. between the two men. She loves them both equally. Well, they got different qualities, you know? And as she has daddy issues, <laughs> and as diehard, you said it, I did. <laughs> oh no! As diehard golfers, they decide, well, let's just play around a golf. Obviously, which is really ooh. That's the most mature way to yeah. settle this argument. I mean, they should have done it like men and stab each other on the golf course, or right. paste and shot the guns. Yeah, but it's like you know, whoever loses <laughs> just leaves. You know, yeah. Let's it, let's go of the the love triangle. Don't worry, we played for you. Yeah. We care so much about you. We played for your yeah. hand. This, this is one of the spots where if you talk about like values of the past yeah. and where stuff gets weird, this is the whole like the woman's on the pedestal. Yeah. 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 So um, they're playing and let's see, one of them, who's the one that cheats? It's uh, George. He's the one that cheats. He's a cheater. He's the old guy. Right? Yeah, he's the older one. Uh, so Potter, uh, Larry Potter, that's his name. So... Larry, I laughed a lot when they Potter. said his name was Larry Potter because it's like, it's almost like J.K. Rowling had seen this. And she's like, well, "What's a name I could give him?" Larry Potter. Wow. Um, and he just walks into this lake and drowns himself, as calm as could be mm-hmm. after he loses. I mean, <laughs> he said, "Well, one of us will go away." That's very, very literal meaning of one of us would go I don't really think the game was like a binding contract like (laughs) it wasn't like life or death you know (laughs) yeah um so great okay so he's dead wonderful so they get married (laughs) well they get engaged they get engaged they're not not married yet right that's right um because as they're going through their engagement and gearing up for the wedding he goes to play golf again for the first time since the incident I think Mm mm-hmm and, and right, because the guy telling the story is the one that's golfing with him in this yeah. flashback in the story. Which I like that because each storyteller experienced what happened. Yeah, they were there in some capacity. Connected in some way where they obtained the story. Yeah, it's not like a friend of a friend, like mm-hmm. an urban legend, you know. Mm-hmm. Ooh. <laughs> I put it in the show notes. <laughs> I didn't mean the movie. Uh, so, okay, so. Parrot. Is his name? George. 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 He's trying to golf, but things keep happening. He's hearing his dead friend's voice. His balls are like 
flying. That sounds really bad. <laughs> he ball was flying around. He said he was older. I mean, uh, he's playing golf, and the golf ball is flying the around. Golf ball is acting strange. He also tries to cheat at one point again, too. He does. Yeah. And the, the guy, the dead guy, is like, oh, you're cheating again. I'll make you pay for that. I'm going to haunt you the rest of your life. I think there's also some golf humor in here, too, because it's always like a joke amongst golfers that, like. Is there golf humor? <laughs> it's the worst kind of humor, surely. When I was in high school, I played some golf sometimes with people, and I've never played again in my life, but they were always like making cheating jokes. And I'm like, this sounds like you guys just have an integrity problem. Yeah. <laughs> Huh. So great. So he's getting haunted. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. And also, there's a little... Another one of the jokes, I guess, is that um, Potter doesn't know how to vanish. Yeah, like he appears to him, well, like an image of him that only George can see, mm-hmm. or Larry can see. The alive guy. Only the alive guy can see it. Only the dude with really long balls. Yeah. So... <laughs> you, can't, you can't prove that. And he's, he's trying to, to disappear, and he forgot how to do it. So he's always there. And he, can only, he has to remain within six feet of Larry while mm-hmm. he is visible. And... But Larry had agreed to give up Mary, right? Mm-hmm. To not be haunted forever. Right. But yeah, since no, the guy's sh- not disappearing... It's a shitty story. It's really hard to get through. Yeah, about so it. anyway... Blah, blah, blah. Stuff happens. We get to the night of the wedding... Right. Um, and and she's then, wanting to consummate it, but he can only, he's always six feet away. He's going to be in the room, you know? <laughs> so then that's a whole, whole to do. Yeah. And then, um, can't perform. George, Don't watch. George vanishes, right? I forget how they, yeah, like he's it. imitating what Larry was trying to do. And he does the right hand gesture. Then he vanishes, even though he's not a ghost, even though he's not dead. Don't, 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 don't just, you're going to hurt yourself. Right. <laughs> so then it's just the dead guy. It's just the ghost. It's just George. And, but Mary's calling from the other room, you know, Hey, come get some. So he's like, well, here's my chance. I'm going to yeah. go. So That's, can Mary see him now? I don't know. Is he like, is this like an entity situation? With Barbara Hershey? <laughs> I don't know, man. Oh, no. This segment sucked. Yeah, that's where it is. You know what? Uh, Ghostbusters, the, the ghost blowjob's pretty funny. Think <laughs> sure about is. It. Yep. Sure <laughs> is. Snuck that right in on all the kids. <laughs> yeah, I didn't quite understand that in the theater. Me I was either. like, what? I mean, I didn't see it in the I'm theater. I'm going to laugh because I don't want to be like, you know. <laughs> is it like when I went to the theater and they were, that little girl said to her mom, she's like, what the... <laughs> character was like uh give him a bj and the, this girl is sitting there and she's like mom what's a bj like out loud and the mom's response is it's fellatio <laughs> like the girl's like oh, oh fellatio. Fellatio. yes yes ah i'm not aware of your colloquialism <laughs> after the spanking the oral sex uh back on our frame story i think this is where we get the um the Poor cup Dustin. the cup breaks and it like smashes the doctor's glasses Right? Yes. Yep. I, th- I think so. No, I think that's no. actually after the last story. Because I think this is when um, the main character, Walter. Uh, Walter, tries to leave. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Because yes. he's like, well, I'm just going to end this now. I'm, I'm not going to leave and, and destroy this cycle. I'm not going to see the rest of this through. And that will change things. We should say, too, every every story, when it finishes, we always get a whole like spiel from the doctor about... Yeah, kind of explaining it. Yeah. But he does not leave. It's almost like he can't, in mm-hmm. a way. It's that whole like prophecy compulsion kind of thing. Right. So then we get the last story. Yes, which is from the Doctor. 
Yes. Which is probably... I think it's the best. Yeah. Easily the best. Hands down. And probably the one that's been ripped off the most. Yeah. Although it is based on a short story, so I guess maybe just other movies have you know used a short story, but still. But I'm sure everyone watched this and was just... Yeah, absolutely. This short's very important to me because it touches on one of those things of horror I love, which Mm -hmm. is killer puppets, killer dolls, dolls, any of that kind of stuff. Yep. So, Dr. Von Stratton talks about interviewing a ventriloquist named Maxwell Frere. Frere, yes. He's, I believe, French he's supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, Michael Redgrave plays him. Does a great job, too. Yeah, he's Mm -hmm. cool. And his puppet, his dummy, is named Hugo. Mm Mm-hmm. And we have uh, an American ventriloquist named Sylvester Key, who his actor was really great in this, too. He was good. To dig down the IMDb's uh, Hartley Power. Mm -hmm. He had a more uh, modern acting. Maybe because he was American. It was more modern. Because, I mean, this is an older movie, so the acting is going to be very arch. You know, it's very over-melodramatic and stuff like that. It's it's stylized. But the guy who played Key, he seemed a lot more natural. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know, interesting. Yeah, but he shows up at the club where Freire is performing, and it's sort of like the variety kind of thing. They have singing, they have mm. just different acts going on. This is that bit of racism mm. that when it happened, I was do like... Wanna, do you want to talk about that, Michael? Uh, it's a subtle little... I don't want to gloss over it because it is wrong, you know? like So basically the person who was um, in charge of the variety club is, is a black lady, Um and it kind of reminds me of Casablanca in mm-hmm. a way. That's a good comparison. You know, like where you have the black character that's like overseeing this club or whatever. And they always take jests from people about the color of their skin. And they're always just kind of laugh it off or whatever. But yeah, Sylvester says something about like darkness or yeah. something like that. And like pinches her on the skin. And you're like, dude, <laughs> you know. I mean, but notably, she owns the club, so that, yeah. that too is... She does, and the way... It's interesting, it's fairly though. Fairly progressive. The yeah. way she plays him is interesting, though, and it's kind of the way that that has been... Like, that white people have been played off of forever. Yeah, like, just, ha, 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 stupid just, white guy, give me yeah, money. Yeah. You know, like, continue to support my club. You know, you say what all the shit you want, but in the end, I win. Kind of a thing. And it's irrelevant to the story that's going to unfold, but there is a little interlude where she sings a song. Mm-hmm. And that's a really great scene, I think. Yeah. She's, she's a good performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we see uh, Maxwell performing with Hugo. And the whole time... Uh, what, is, what is her name that's the club owner? Oh, what you have to ask me that for? Sorry. Why, Michael? Why? Uh, well, anyway, she keeps saying to Sylvester, she's like, you've never seen this guy? Like, yeah. no, Beula. he's... Beulah is her name. Oh, yeah, yeah, Beula. you're right. Beulah. And she's like, you've never seen this guy? No, he's fantastic. Like Played every... by Elizabeth Welch. Mm-hmm. She Everybody loves him. Like, yeah, he's the best. Yeah, and of course Sylvester's like, ah, I don't know about that. I'm pretty damn good myself. Um, However, as the performance unfolds, he is just nailing it, mm-hmm. doing all kinds of cool, crazy tricks. There's even uh, there's a really slick scene too where um, Sylvester pours mm-hmm. um, Maxwell a glass of wine. Yep. And if you notice, Hugo is speaking while Maxwell is taking a drink of that mm-hmm. wine and Sylvester thinks like he's just really really good yeah because technically some ventriloquists can do stunts like that right mm-hmm. but he's like actively trying to test him yeah Sylvester is really testing how good this guy is and the whole time he goes like hey come see me you know maybe we can get an act going and get rid of this guy and it plays well yeah because you know, it's like all the typical 
I mean, everything from this is a trope from this. Like, mm-hmm. all the things that the dummy would say. Right. And you know, he, it kind of plays, I'm not the dummy. He's the dummy. Yeah, and yeah. it plays into the act. That he's like, oh, I'm going to abandon you. Mm-hmm. And everyone just laughs because they're like, oh. And then he refuses to sing. He doesn't want to do the singing. Yeah. <clears throat> the, the number. The bit that I really love is when he leaves the stage uh, and he's like, the act is done. And then, like, Hugo actually yeah. pokes his head back out and he's yeah. like, Sylvester. I'm waiting for you in my dressing yeah, room. Come see me. Yeah. <laughs> and you think everybody, the audience still thinks it's part of the act, right. but then you're like, oh. And know. of course, a modern audience member watching this now kind of already knows that this dummy is obviously sentient. <laughs> right. But I think it's still the way Redgrave plays it. Oh, no. It's yeah. done very well. Yeah. Redgrave has this. I don't think it would work without how how well Redgrave plays yeah. the whole character. He's got this nervousness. Like, he mm-hmm. knows any minute Hugo could just do whatever right but you can tell like this has been a whole long story before this point even mm-hmm. of like being with hugo and being kind of broken down by his tyranny yeah well sylvester ends up like trying to hugo basically tries to get sylvester and kind of like rope him into the deal right he goes to speak to Freya. i think really just at first as like colleagues to maybe like work together in the future right right or just a mutual respect for what they're mm-hmm. doing and that's when um yeah, Hugo tries to convince Sylvester that they should work together. And Sylvester, still unassuming, thinks this is just like... This, this dude's just like it's showing off at this yeah, point. Yeah, right. Uh, but it ends up not... They end up not... Well, he tries to silence Hugo. He throws his hand over his right. face, and then Hugo bites him. Yeah. It actually draws blood. Yeah, and Sylvester sees the bite mark on his, on his hand. And that's your little ominous like, hmm, what's yeah, going on? Something's weird here. But then we flash forward a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sylvester obviously has been following Maxwell like throughout his career a little bit. I don't know if it's that so much. Like the vibe I got was like they just run in the same yeah the same circles, right? Like, he catches up with them in London. So it was kind of like a, oh, there's that guy. Well, at this point, you see Frere just completely drunk out of his mind, like yeah. at a bar. He's just wasted, uh, but you know, obviously still has Hugo with him because you know Hugo. What are you gonna do? Yeah, um, and this. Lady comes into the bar. This this couple comes <laughs> into the bar. They come in for a quick drink before the show. This dude's styling. He's got a lady He's on got each arm. Two ladies. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of them, one of the ladies, decides to go over and like kind of make a bit mm-hmm. with with Hugo and and Freyer. And Hugo is just like letting her have it, yeah. like with just rough joke after rough joke. And she's finally like, "Are you gonna?" Are you gonna let him talk to me like this? And I love the dude that came in. He's like, I, I guess not. Yeah, do I have to do this? Okay. Like, so, but, hey, give her an apology. He, but he's even trying to be like, come on, it's a bit. Like yeah, it's right. just a bit. Uh, well, obviously Hugo's not gonna give an apology or whatever. So this dude was asking Frere for it. Yes. Right, right, <laughs> right. Um, Frere's like, I didn't say it. But yeah, Frere's really drunk. Not even. <laughs> This is where I think you really see the two of them like very disconnected, and right. you kind of start to see that Hugo is his own character. Because right, there's no way of... you could be in the state that Frere's in and still do the mm-hmm. Hugo character at the same right. time, unless you're full blown Andy Kaufman. Mm. Um, there's only one, so. But Sylvester pops out of the corner. He's been watching the whole thing. Yeah, and fight breaks out. He breaks it up, and he's like, "Come on, leave him alone," or whatever. Um, then starts to realize, like, "Oh shit, Frere's in a bad spot." Yep. Um, and he's a cool guy about it. He he yeah, gets him back him to, to his, his hotel, hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this is uh, this is where Hugo starts to do his thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Frere, Frere wakes up the next morning. Hugo's not there. So Frere goes to Key's room, accuses him of stealing Hugo, 
and finds Hugo there. Yeah, because at first he's like, what are you talking about? Why would I steal yeah. Hugo? <laughs> but then he turns, and right there, laying kind of at the edge of the bed, yeah. Hugo's right there. And then Frere pulls a fucking gun and shoots <laughs> Sylvester. Sylvester. Yeah. yeah, multiple Couple times. Multiple times, yeah. yeah. Which is pretty alarming. That's like one of yeah. the, the biggest moments of violence we've seen. But he's a tough motherfucker. He doesn't die. Somehow. <laughs> Uh, so uh, he gets arrested for this, obviously. Naturally. And that's where the doctor comes into the picture. Right, because he's been asked to come interview Frere, evaluate his sanity, all that crap. And he's like, hey, let's give him his dummy back, see what happens. Yep. Yeah, that's that's very bad psychology. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's like horrible psychology. That's oh. 1940s Yeah, that's 40 psychology. What are you going to do? Uh, what's the, uh, the rabbit experience? Or the... Shit, there's... I don't know. There was one of the experiments... Where they like? Well, it is immersion therapy. We just whatever object of fear, whatever it is, you just throw at them, mm-hmm. put them right into it. Well, yeah, that's. I don't think they really do that anymore. Well, I'm but, just saying it, it yeah. was a valid thing. Uh, but yeah, now that Hugo is back with Frere, Frere kind of starts to lose his shit with Hugo uh, immediately, almost. Yeah, yeah and uh, ends up smothering him. And it's interesting too because they start to argue. Yeah, and it actually like escalates a back and forth argument, and then yeah, he just lets it all have it. He smothers him like violently, smothers mm-hmm. him, and then when he gets him on the ground, he's just like stomping and stomping. Yeah, just and this is where head. they're like, I guess we should go in there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we should probably fix the crazy person. Um, and then, then Hugo is smashed now on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's a twist. Well, they're right. talking to Frere later. He's in the asylum. And Sylvester's recovered. Yeah, Sylvester's recovered. He's cool enough to go in there and talk to Frere after getting shot by him. Yeah, Stratton thinks if they speak, maybe that'll also have some effect. Yeah. I don't know why you would do that after you saw what happened to Hugo. This guy's not a good psychologist, uh, obviously. Clearly, yeah. Um, But talking to him, Frere speaks in Hugo's voice. Yeah. And now, so when it comes back, now it comes back to our frame story... That's when the dude breaks his glasses. Yeah. The doctor breaks his glasses. Because he's explaining at the end of that story about how clearly it was like a split personality thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and he's trying to do Frere a psychoanalysis thing. Yeah. And so it was clearly nothing supernatural in any way, shape, or form. Right. And then, yeah, that's where he breaks his glasses. And that seems like just ha- turns on a switch. Yeah, like that's the key to everything. Um, everyone else leaves. Mm-hmm. Again, very... Because doesn't Craig ask for a moment alone with the doctor? Yeah. To talk to him alone? Uh, everyone leaves, and then I, the lighting changes. The camera angles get a little bit weirder. I mean, it, there's like a real, like, oppressive, ominous mood here all of a yeah. sudden. And Craig's character changes a lot. He's and he suddenly says, menacing. He realizes what he's there for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that last little bit that he could never see, the actual, like, bad part, in that moment it becomes clear to him. Yeah, that he wants to kill this doctor. Which, I mean, he, who wouldn't after he's shat on everyone? Yeah. The whole he day. even says, Why did you have to break your glasses? Mm-hmm. You know, cause it, just, it just fell into his vision his like that's the that trigger Yeah. I mean why'd you have to spill your beans <laughs> why'd you spill your beans True. Uh, so yeah he straight up strangles this doctor and then the movie kicks it into overdrive I that's love not cool enough. this part this is like one of the best scenes in the whole it's film it's amazing 
Craig starts to flip out and he hallucinates and he kind of like rapid fire goes through each of the stories yeah. that have been told. And the way it's shot and edited is masterful. I mean, suddenly we're getting Dutch angles. We're getting mm-hmm. a lot of expressionistic type lighting and stuff. It gets crazy. Very phantasmagoric, very nightmare fuel. Yeah, disorienting. Um, some of my favorite things, like he ends up and he's at the party and like he's like right there playing hide and seek with them. Mm-hmm. And then he'll he'll turn and then like he meets the hearse driver and he does the room for one more sir thing. Yeah, he the guy with the mirror. He's like, let me hide in the room in your mirror. Yeah. <laughs> but and he winds up in that asylum mm-hmm. with, with Hugo, Hugo. Yeah, sitting in the corner. And the creepiest part, because there's all these uh, like faces, leering faces and mm-hmm. stuff, like staring at him and and pawing at him, and they're outside the bars looking in, and you see Hugo sitting in the corner. And Craig's laying on the bed, and then Hugo just starts standing up. Yes. Oh, my God. And it's yeah. so fucking... It made me think of, like, Deep Red. Yeah, that have puppet the doll. Yeah. yeah. It was immediately... I can imagine from 1945, people pissing themselves at this yeah. scene, you know? It's incredible. Such a good shot. And then he walks over to Craig and jumps on the... And, and you know it's a kid, mm-hmm. or maybe a little person in the mask and everything, but it's creepy. Yeah. I mean, it really Very works. effective. Yeah. One of the all-time best horror segments ever, I think. Almost mm-hmm. just that shot is like so good. Yep. And one of my favorite, like in the interim when all the people are there, I think one of the swoops and he's in another thing. He's at the club, and Hugo's there, but it's Sylvester now controlling him. Yeah. And they do a little back and forth bit real That's quick. That's right. Yeah. Super cool. And then as he's getting strangled by the the dummy, uh, you hear a phone ringing, and he wakes up in his bed, and his wife's there. It was all a dream. It was just a dream. It was just a dream. Then he gets a phone call, or the phone call that woke him up was about coming out to the country to see this house. Yeah, it's Foley. Do some renovation. It's Foley. And he's like, oh, that's kind of familiar. And he says, like, <laughs> I'm not, he's like, he doesn't really want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his wife's like, no, no, it'll be good for you. You should go. You should go. And, and get out in the country for a little bit. And he's like, all right, fine, I'll flip for it. Heads I go, tails I stay. Yes. Heads, Flips, fate. heads, and he's like, guess I'm going. You're not escaping fate, buddy. And then the um, movie ends where it begins. I, I fucking love that <laughs> yeah, so the, much. The Mobius strip, yeah, kind of thing. It is, but I love that scene so it much. E- it even says the end as he's driving up to it, but it keeps playing over the credits. Yeah, we're, we're seeing the exact same thing again. Over I, the I loved it. Right. It just went. It's just that feeling of like I don't know. Have you guys ever had a recurring nightmare? Yeah, not. Not a recurring one, no, I don't think. I don't. I haven't had them like throughout stages of my life, but I've had them for like a week in a row sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're creepy enough that you're like, I don't really want to go to bed. Yeah, why am I keep having this dream? Yeah, and, and like it's just disturbing enough that you're like, it it disturbs your sleep cycle. Yeah. So like, just the fact of feeling like you never leave that is its own terrifying. Oh God! Thing. Also, if you're do you ever have those nights where you're just dreaming all night and you keep dreaming almost the same thing over yeah. and over? To yeah. the point you almost feel tired when you wake yeah. up. Yeah. God, I hate those. And you, you think you're awake because I'll, I'll have lucid dreams sometimes. I'm like, wake up, wake up, and I wake up. But well, then, that's and because it's like you a, have sleep apnea. <laughs> oh, <probably>. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not breathing. You're actually dead. I'm actually dying? Oh, okay. Uh, but it's a cliche, too, because they show it in the movies all the time mm-hmm. where you wake up. Oh, but you're still in the dream. But that happens. God, I hate that. It does, I, I used to have those a lot more, but yeah, it, I think it almost, it feels tropey when you see it, but it's because this was so good, you right. know, like, it was the first one. Yeah. It was the ear text. Yeah. And so many, so many, dire- <laughs> so many directors have pointed to this movie saying, yes, this was a huge mm-hmm. influence on me. I could imagine 
seeing that like for a lot of prominent horror directors growing up like yeah the older guys yeah like seeing this is like holy shit this is what i want to do and the thing too is that like it's not very violent or very gory but the horror that's actually there is so effective like especially this ending it's actually a really really dark ending when you think about it Mm -hmm. and it's almost like this faded incident that's going to happen which was not the de gore for endings back then for horror right. films. Usually you had to have a nice, bright, happy ending. Yeah, they stop the monster, the guy gets the girl, yeah. everything's going to be okay. Uh, not this one. <laughs> for me, I think some of the scariest thing is always the implication. Right. Like, yes, I love monster movies, and I love when there's big bouts of gore and everything like that, but those things don't scare me. For me, what's scary is the implication of something. Because an like, idea will sit with you yeah, forever. Yeah, once they plant that, and they don't give it to fruition, like they, mm. you don't see everything to its end, right. to its happy end, and you're you are yourself stuck in that loop of mm. wondering how it might be. Yeah. yeah, you're right there with old Walter. Yep, good stuff. I've got some fun facts. Okay, lay it on me, man. Um, U.S. distributors thought this movie was too long. U.S. distributors can suck a bag. It's only of like an hour something. and. How long? It's 105 minutes, and they said we need it to be 77. Let's 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 fix this. So they cut the golfing tail, which I actually think is kind of okay. I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm okay with that. But then they also took out the Christmas ghost what? story. No. Which, if you think about it, it makes some weird like continuity problems when they have that nightmare montage and he shows up at the mansion with the party. Yeah. Because they don't really have the golfers in that bit. I think they're just like there laughing at one point. But mm-hmm. but even then, that it creates one problem because every guest tells a story. And, and they all cut one build, out. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's a weird thing. Yeah. Um, I kept seeing this in my research, and it's weird. There were some cosmologists, and they developed this thing called the steady state theory, which was an alternative to the idea of the Big Bang. And it's attributed in a lot of places that this movie was an inspiration for that. Yeah, it's crazy. I couldn't source that back to like anything super credible, but uh, I thought it was. Idea. I thought it was worth talking about. I don't know if people have just like proliferated this idea or what, but um, they said that the circular nature of the plot inspired this theory, which is this idea that uh, instead of like there was a big bang and there's nothing, and then boom, there's all kinds of stuff. There's kind of always been the same stuff, and it's just been like a cycle. That's. Um, been like a perfect set thing and like changed over time mm-hmm. that's obviously pretty discredited now at this point are you saying this film is the uh urtext to that theory <laughs> uh technically yes if you believe that and it is true <laughs> it is the urtext <laughs> nice um, today's episode is brought to you by the word so a word urtext. of the day <laughs> um things i wanted to mention we talked about a little bit this film is super influential on amicus Oh, yeah. And a lot of the horror films they made. Maybe one day we should even do a block of just Amicus films. I'm down. But there's that connection there. The segments themselves have been redone and redone. Sometimes that's because there was, like you said, a source, a short story. Some notable ones I wanted to talk about. So the idea of a fatal crash and a premonition of that. It was done as 22, a 1961 episode of The Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. Wanted to put that out there. Um, the whole like cursed mirror thing has been done a ton. There was the mirror, a 1961 episode of the twilight zone and an amicus production beyond the grave had a segment called the gate crasher. Mm-hmm. And then of course, like you mentioned, Jason Oculus sure. as well is a very notable one. Um, just the general idea of a recurring nightmare also crops up with a twilight zone episode. 
uh, Shadow Play, also from 1961. Hmm. And our big whammy of them all, the ventriloquist with the dummy that seems to be alive on its own. There's a ton of places for that. And there were films before this. Um, 1929, they had The Great Gabo. That was like a very early film that did it. Um, after this film in 1957, there was The Glass Eye, which was an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Hmm. Very underrated show, I think. Oh, yeah. A lot of episodes of that. Mm -hmm. The Twilight Zone has hit this twice 1962 with The Dummy, and then two years later in 64 with Caesar and Me. Yeah. Plus numerous, numerous other films. Like Magic. Yeah, Magic was the one I think of. Um, Devil Doll, a Mm -hmm. dreary 1960s movie that they did on (laughs) MST3K. Um, Even the name of the, the name was Hugo of the puppet, so it could have been based true. on the same story. And it may have been. I didn't look into the story, but I probably should have. What was the name of the vent- of the puppet in uh, Goosebumps? Oh, Slappy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Which yeah, Goosebumps also. Oh sure. Definitely pulled from that for that character. That episode of Buffy, the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's all the little fun things I have. Um, oh, we should say Hugo's voice. It was supplied by a real-life British ventriloquist, Arthur Brow. It's a good voice. Great voice. Very classic. Uh, pretty much like scene-defining for that, that segment. Nice. So I think that's all the little additional notes I have. I think so, too. I think that's all I've got. So that brings us to our final thoughts. Final thoughts. And I'm going to put an extra twist to these. What Not do only do I want your final thoughts, but I want your favorite segment. Okay. Easily done, my friend. Should I go um, first? I've seen it before. Should go first. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we can't emphasize how much of a classic this is, how influential it is. It's just one of those seminal works that defines a subgenre. Uh, as a rating, I would give it four and a half stars. Woo! The only thing that keeps her being a full five is the golfer story. I just, it just kind of brings it to a halt for me. And it was working up such good momentum. And I think it also might, maybe then it played better, but now it just, it's not very funny. And it's like, okay. And a lot of my research, I think the consensus of the idea for that is that was to break up the tension and give right. people a break. Yeah, which, which I get. A lot of anthologies do that, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the acting solid, it's just, especially that, that ending with the directing and the editing and everything, the lighting, it's just really ahead of Perfection. time, I think, yeah. I mean, there's a reason why this is a classic. And if you are a fan of anthology films, if you're a fan of old horror films, you cannot go wrong watching this. Cool. I'll go next. Seek it out. All right. Uh, I love this film. I set that up right from the very start of this whole episode. Mm -hmm. No spoilers there. It's super amazing. It is the urtext of everything (laughs) that you love in horror at some point. You can probably trace it back to this film in some way, shape, or form. Which is super awesome, and uh, you know, we sometimes we cover like really deep cuts. Sometimes we cover like more obscure things. Whatever. This is very mainstream. This is very well known. Plenty of people that listen in may have already seen this, unlike me. But I also think like being a classic, it's worth revisiting. Sure, and, and a lot of people. I mean, there's still some classics I haven't watched. Mm-hmm. You know, you just they sit there and everyone says how good it is, and you never watch it. So this is my call to yeah. If you've not seen this, do sit down and watch this. It is it is worth your time. And there is a lot of tropey and like overdone stuff, but this is where it all came from. And it's even if you count that in the mix, like still what they do, the execution, the cinematography, the way it all blends together and shakes out, it's so impressive 
and just so like overwhelming visually and interesting and leaves that leaves you with that killer idea right at the end. That's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you, Jason, the golfing segment, ah, throw it out. It's not that it's bad, bad. It's just to me, like it pulled me out of the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I guess wasn't the desired effect, but who knows in the forties, maybe I would feel different. Maybe um, if you're an old English golfer, you find right. it hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, if that time was put into those earlier stories to pad those out a bit and give them a little more meat to them, I think that would be like ultimate perfection. But what do I know? I'm just one guy. Mm-hmm. So I'm super confident right out of four on this one. Nice. Nice. I'm probably, this is your movie. What do you think? I'm probably going to land with you, Dustin, okay. on a four. Mm-hmm. I, but I'm really close to four and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, the golfer thing just, yeah. I know, it's right. They should have extended the first story and gotten rid of the golfer story. Yeah. Um, my kind of like my comfort movies are Hammer mm-hmm. and Amicus, and mm-hmm. like those are like it. I know for some people they have different kind of comfort movies, but mine yeah. are. There's just something about when those movies come on. I'm just like, Very okay, cozy. I'm I'm yeah. I'm good. Uh, I'm watching something that I really dig, and I I love old films. I don't want to sound like pretentious about it or anything. Um, right. There, there is that whole like, oh, people don't watch the old films anymore, which I'm I mean, not, technically is true, but... Eh. And, but not all of them are great. Like, right. some people want to say because it's old, it's great. No, there's a lot of shit, too. Oh, yeah. yeah, there's always been a lot of shit. But this one, as far as... Um, I, I think it's hard to get people to watch older films, too. Mm-hmm. Um, especially modern horror audiences. They don't even like stuff from the 70s. <laughs> right. And you this, know, you're talking black and white, not a lot of like gore. boring. Right, right. But I don't think you can say any of those things about. I mean, it is black and white, but pacing. Which is fine. Black and white's gorgeous. Right. <laughs> but pacing wise, I think this is very on par with oh, yeah. a modern film as far as pacing goes. Absolutely. And this does the anthology so much better than even really good anthology movies. You know, like <laughs> uh, one that came to mind, like. Right before we started the podcast and we were just doing Movie Club, uh, we watched um, uh, the Mortuary Collection. collection. Mm-hmm. On Shutter, yeah. And Which is fine. Yeah, it, exactly. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And then you watch this and you're like, uh, they probably should have taken some notes. <laughs> yeah. Well. But I don't know. I, I really, really dug this. It's just very comfortable for me. As unsettling as it is, it's mm. it's something cozy about this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, it's And, and I'll, I'll say, too... Watching it on uh, Canopy, it was a good co- it was a, a good copy. Yeah, right. If you're in the U.S., we should say like we mentioned Canopy last time. You need a library card to sign up for it. You get what is it? I think you get five plays a month. But dude, the catalog was really good. Fucking incredible. They have tons of Criterion, tons of Arrow, tons of uh, was it Kino Lorber on there? A lot of stuff. Yeah. So that too, like, and this being preserved as well. Mm-hmm. Which it deserves to be preserved. Yeah, I don't know. Is there a blue release of this or anything like that? I don't know. Uh-oh. If there is, it's going to be bought after yeah. this episode. <laughs> I Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed this. I will say I'm really bouncing between four and four and a half. I guess I'll solidly land on four. Okay. Because um, that would be shitty for me to be like, I don't know. <laughs> I can't actually rate it. Probably one of our highest rated uh, episodes, maybe. Uh, I think Nightingale was our highest. Mm, uh but no, I really, really enjoyed this. I think if you like old film at all, um, even if you're a modern horror fan, like go back to the roots. Oh yeah, see what made Ooh. this stuff. Uh, it is on Blu-ray right now. It's only twelve bucks on Amazon. Oh shit! For who the put, blue, who put it out? 
Um, da, 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 da. I'm asking the hard questions. Yeah, seriously. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm looking. Yeah, we can we can trim this down. Well, if you're a physical media collector, <laughs> that's a great price. KL Studio Classics. Oh, that's Kino Lorber. Yeah. Oh, Kino Lorber. Okay, there you go. Cool. Also, uh, that up a side next, note, uh, Dead of Night is also streaming on Fandor. What, uh, what is Fandor? Did you watch it on that? I did. Did you have commercials? No. Okay. The thing that I referenced last episode about that Fossum or whatever that was on the Roku channel, mm-hmm. uh, that was riddled with commercials at horrible times. Oh, that sucks. So I, I dropped that immediately and went and just downloaded canopy cool. and it was perfect on well, that Fandor was actually a subscription service but you can do the whole seven day trial thing oh cool and watch this and yeah because you wouldn't get a library card i know it's fine yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't want the government knowing what i'm up to okay so to close us out <laughs> oh they know buddy before we get on they more lists know. oh shit uh jason what was your favorite segment uh the ventriloquist dummy followed closely by the mirror story okay well i am unsurprisingly right there with hugo and the ventriloquist story yeah it's just the best. Yeah, it's hands it's, down. Yeah, that one's mine. But it's. I think like the mirror the best. Uh, no, not compared to Hugo. Oh, okay. I mean, like, outside of the most classic one that everything <laughs> has copied since then. Uh huh. No, I do like. I do like the. Um, I do like the. I'm sorry, I'm having word finding troubles this evening. Mm-hmm. I okay. like the. Um, the whole like the haunted object like makes you right. crazy kind yeah. of thing yeah. sure so I'm, a, I'm a sucker for that yeah so um yeah so we're all in on the ventriloquist i think every segment in this could be bad and if they had the one hugo segment it would still be like a three and a half star film yeah yeah or something. so it's amazing that you come to this and like every segment is great except oh that golfer one your mileage is gonna vary mm-hmm. i think maybe some of our we listeners are golfers and yeah. they're like that's the fucking that's funniest the shit part. i've seen <laughs> All right, so that uh, brings us to the end on this one. Yep, Dead of Night. We're going good. Jason, you've got our next film. I do, I do. I'm going to bring it up a few decades and take it to America and do one of my favorites from when I was a kid. Mm. Favorite anthology. Are there childs and children in danger? Uh, <laughs> yes. Anything like that? Yeah. Huh. Okay. <laughs> totally ex- I don't know why this keeps happening. I don't know why. I swear to God, I am not trying to do this. The theory is still on. It's still solid. Oh, God. Cat's Eye from 1985. Classic. I, I probably haven't seen it since high school, so this will be good to revisit. Yeah, for me. you said you haven't seen it at all, right, Michael? No, I haven't. Awesome. Uh, okay. Well, we'll watch it. Do we know where it's streaming currently? Or oh, if it's hang streaming? on. I will uh, get that for you. Right I got now. booted off your internet sometime during the, <laughs> during the recording of this, or else I would have had it pulled up and ready to go for you. Wow, real professional, guys. Why um, are you... Uh, okay, oh, God, it's everywhere. Oh, cool. It's on Peacock, it's on... Um, I thought it was on Shudder, maybe, but it might have... It's not on Shudder anymore. Most of the stuff you have to pay for. It's on Apple, it's on Amazon. I have Apple. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, it's, you have to buy it, though. It's like three bucks. Oh, that does me no good. Uh-oh. It's well, out there. Know, We'll find it's out it. There. It's out there. It's out there. It's easily to get. You might have to spend a couple of bucks. It's okay. It's fine. It's fine. Whatever. <laughs> I, it's worth it. Jason says it's worth it. And I'm going to go ahead and do a little spoiler, okay. if that's okay with you guys. Because this movie is, uh, the, the wraparound segment is basically a cat. Mm-hmm. A cat's on a journey throughout each of the stories. Oh. The cat's fine. Nothing happens. Okay, things happen. The cat lives. <laughs> 
The cat does not die. The cat has serious trauma. So if you're watching this and you're very affected by like animal deaths and things like that, the, the cat survives. I'm glad you put that out there because that, that is for some people that hits really hard. Yeah. If the cat died, I'm gonna I'm gonna be crying the whole episode. I, yeah, like, yeah, me too. I mean, and there is that website. Uh, what is it? Does the dog die? Right. Dot com. Yeah. 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 So watch it freely, knowing that the cat's fine. This one's been super fun to talk about. Loved I've it. Really, really yes. enjoyed this. Um, love going back and watching classics and examining where they came from. Yeah. I, yep. I didn't realize how much I do love anthologies until yeah. we start talking about it. I'm like, yep, love that one. Love that one. They're great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for um, continuing to comment and interact with us online. We always appreciate it. Send us movie requests. We do those listener episodes between every block of topics. Love it. And even if we don't do your request, um, like if if it doesn't come around to where we hit that one right away, we actually do watch the things that you recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we'll just start, and maybe for some of the ones, if they pile up a little bit, we can start doing that where I can, you know, like we could do what you watch this week and we can yeah. start picking out something that's Or maybe an episode where we do a few choices, you know, three or a few different movies yeah. in one episode. Yeah. If you like these ideas, tell us. Um, until next time, you've been listening to Genre Exposure. listening to the prescribed films podcast network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment the shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media the pfpn hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com thanks for listening